Hey, good morning, everyone. I invite you to open your Bibles with me and turn to Philippians chapter 3. We'll be looking at the first 11 verses of Philippians 3. And if you haven't been tracking with us through our series, we go verse by verse through the book of Philippians to understand how to run our race with joy, speaking specifically of the Christian race, our our discipleship journey to know and pursue Jesus. Now, Paul just finished speaking about positive examples, people we encounter in our Christian journey that we should give thanks for and learn from. In Philippians 2, he speaks of two contemporary examples to him, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Uh, but for you, you probably have some other positive examples that you could think of in your Christian journey and ones that we should be grateful for. But there comes a time in your journey when you're going to hit a wall. You're going to hit the wall. You're going to hit obstacles in your life. You're not going to know whether to quit or persevere. And the examples of others can only take you so far. But it will be your journey in Christ your decision to choose joy that will continue on. In fact, I'm not a marathoner, but I've done a little bit of research and talked to enough marathoners to know that there comes a point where you hit a wall running a marathon and you cannot go any further physically, or at least that's what your body would tell you. Uh, for most marathoners, that comes around the 21-mile marker or somewhere between 18 and 21 miles, depending on your body and, and uh, genetic makeup, I suppose. Um, but a marathon lasts 26.2 miles. So you're really not that far from the end, but your body starts to work against you. It becomes a mind game. You're telling yourself, I can't go any farther. I can't set the pace anymore. I'm, I'm, I gotta quit and I gotta sit down by the side of the road. And the mind has to tell the body to keep going. When we get to Philippians chapter 3, Paul knows that the church at Philippi, they've been running their race so well. They've been running with joy, but they've hit a wall. Maybe you're here this morning and you've hit a wall. Your heart is hurting. Your mind is stressed out. Maybe you're tired and angry at God. And I pray that this morning's message will speak to your heart I'd like to read the text for you, and I invite you to read along with me. The Word of God says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. <clears throat> if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish 
in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul's main point for us, and also God's main point for us this morning, I would have us consider, true believers can push past the wall and fully enjoy life in Jesus. Now, what is the wall? Only you can answer that question. Only you can answer what particular sin habits or doubts or fears or worries or or opposition from others is threatening to put up a wall that you think you cannot overcome. But my friends, when we embrace these three realities that we find in the text, three realities of joy, you can run past any wall. Here they are. First, Jesus defines our joy, not people. Secondly, we boast in Jesus, not our efforts. And thirdly, Joy is found in the pursuit of Christ. Let's look at that first one. Jesus defines our joy, not people. In the first three verses, Paul makes this explicitly clear. He starts the section by a final word. Rather, the word is finally. But Paul is not done with his message. Perhaps it sounds like a preacher you know who says, in conclusion, and then preaches another 10 to 15 minutes. That's not what Paul is doing here, and don't give me those looks. I I know you're not thinking of me. (laughs) But Paul says, finally, as a point of advancing what he had just said in chapter 2. You could translate this word, furthermore. He just finished writing about examples of living Christian testimonies, Timothy and Epaphroditus, and people who have received the gospel, they're following Jesus, they're living out their faith, and now it's your turn. Furthermore, rejoice in the Lord. Paul is speaking to Christians, Christians, not in name only, but who have genuine saving faith in Jesus Christ. To rejoice is to be in a state of well-being and gladness. The fact that he tells us to rejoice shows that People and circumstances do not dictate how we respond in our faith walk. Philippians 2.13, just a few verses before, Paul told us, It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It reminds me of one of my favorite psalm verses, Psalm 118.24. The psalmist says, This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Joy comes in the Lord. And to choose to rejoice in the Lord is a choice that a true believer can make because the Spirit of God at work in us changes our desires so that even when we're in a difficult situation, we can choose to reflect on what is good, right, and true, what God is doing rather than what others are doing perhaps against us. Joy comes in the Lord. And if you are in Christ, you have all the joy 
in the world and the universe at your disposal. Because God's promises hold true. The cross still stands as a monument to God's unconditional love and his unwavering faithfulness to rescue and restore his people. The empty grave still stands as a reminder that there is no grave, there's no obstacle, there's no cancer, there's no hardship or homework assignment that can possibly wipe us out. Jesus is the victor, and to be in Christ is to also share in his glory, in his life eternal, and even in the joy for the present day. Now, I myself had a discouraging day this past week. I was physically and emotionally wiped out. I was struggling to see the positive and some things going on. And for those of you that know me, you know I'm typically the optimistic person in the room. And, and I just see positivity everywhere. And I see a vision. And But there was a day this past week where I wasn't seeing the vision. I was struggling even to pray or want to pray. And I tried to think about verses from the Bible and meditate, but my mind just wouldn't cling to those verses. And then what God did was an incredible thing. He brought this verse to my mind. This one that I've been reading and praying over in preparation for Sunday's message. Rejoice in the Lord. I came up against the wall and I had to tell myself from God's word, Josh, you just got to rejoice. You have to choose to rejoice in Jesus today. Because if I wait till my feelings catch up to me, it's not going to happen. I'm not going to be able to pick myself up from this one. I just have to choose to put my joy somewhere other than my circumstances. And there's a reason Paul uses the term Lord to describe Jesus here. Do we really believe that Jesus is sovereign and ruler and king overall? He's the only one with full authority over our lives. Everything in life happens for a reason. And it's going to happen for, for our good and for God's glory. Whether that's work or family or church or relationships, we hope and we are genuinely glad because Jesus is still alive and he's still on the throne of God. Sovereign over all. He holds the keys to death, hell, heaven, and everything in between. So Paul says in verse 1, I, I write these same words to you. And I'm reminding you to, to put your joy in Jesus. It's no trouble for me and it's safe for you. Paul knows we have to repeat this theme. Every day I choose to rejoice in Jesus. I will rejoice and be glad in him. I'm not going to apologize for being repetitive. He also knows that we need safety and security in our faith. Because we don't know exactly when temptations will come. We don't know where our next obstacle will come from, most likely. It could be completely unexpected. But he does give a warning of someone, something to watch out for, that will try to throw us off the, off the trail, and we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. In verse 2, he says, Look out, look out, look out. Three times he repeats himself. The church of Philippi had a situation. They had some influential people coming in, setting the wrong kind of example in their Christian journey, and they were teaching a different gospel. It was similar to what they heard from Paul, but also very different. 
And he names them three different terms. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for the Judaizers. Now, the dogs, well, he could be referring to your everyday mongrel running the streets. This was a common problem. In the ancient days, the dogs would eat garbage. They would run in packs. They would run around and disrupt citizen life. They were a nuisance. But theologically speaking, historically speaking, Jews used that term to describe Gentiles. Those who were outside the covenant people of Israel, the Jews looked down on them and referred to them as dogs in a dehumanizing term. So possibly that is what he's referring to. But we have to go further into uh, the, the names that he uses to understand exactly who he's referring to. He says evildoers. Again, fairly generic. Uh, could be people who were in the church and were living contrary to the teachings of the word of God. Could be people who claimed to be good, upstanding church members, but they lived a questionable life. And we don't really fully get a, a, a complete picture of who they are until he calls them mutilators of the flesh. Mutilators of the flesh. Now he's getting specific. These are false teachers, Judaizers. As we saw earlier in Philippians, they claim that in order to be a Christian, you, believe, you have to believe in Jesus, but you also have to keep the Old Testament law. It's still important for you to be circumcised, to keep the Sabbath, to be a, a, a festival keeper. They believe that circumcision was important to continue the promises of the covenant God made to Abraham back in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17, God's covenant of promise. But Paul and the apostles and the teaching of Jesus Christ stands in opposition to this. It's not faith plus works. It's not faith plus Judaism. If that was the gospel that Jesus was teaching, I'm sure the Pharisees would not have opposed him so rigorously. But here comes these false teachers. They're claiming you have to keep the Old Testament law. We can be good enough to earn heaven. And they were confusing and dividing, discouraging and nipping at the heels of the church of Philippi. And that's why Paul calls them dogs. He says, it's not the Gentiles I'm worried about. Those who are outside the covenant promises of God, because we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I'm concerned about you. You who act like good people and you claim to love the church, but then you teach a false gospel that will damn someone to hell and disrupt their security, their joy in Jesus. He shares a similar concern to the church at Galatia. Galatia was even more influenced by the Judaizers. He tells them in Galatians 5, 7, you were running so well. Who hindered you? In other words, who tripped you up? In Galatians 6, 11, he tells the reason why the Judaizers have combined faith plus works. They were afraid of what the other Jews thought. They were a slave to man's opinion. They wanted to please everyone, to please the Jews and to please the church. They were miserable trying to please people, and they changed the message in order to try to do that. And if we're not careful, Christian, 
These kinds of false teachers will try to trip us up today. They want us to be unsettled, uncertain, miserable, looking over our shoulder, trying to please people because they are similarly miserable. Remember, we're told without faith, it is impossible to please God. Hebrews eleven six. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace, you are saved through faith. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. And anyone who tells you that God's love can be earned or bought or good works can advance your standing before a holy and righteous God, they are joy killers. So Paul says, ignore that. Here's the encouraging news. Verse three, we are the circumcision. Not because of what we've done with human hands, but we worship by the spirit of God. We glory in Christ Jesus. We put no confidence in the flesh. It's not about what we did with our hands. It's not about what's been done to our bodies. It's what God has done with his hands, piercing all the way to the heart and soul of the believer. He says, true descendants of Abraham, the true circumcision, the true children of God. We understand that salvation is heart surgery. I can't just add something to my life. Jesus is not an add-on. I need a complete change of heart. I need my sin taken away and cleansed. I need to be sealed by the Spirit of God. That only happens by faith, true saving faith in Jesus Christ. We worship in spirit and in truth. Now, he's not saying worship here as in just the 60 minutes you put into a worship service once a week. Or in some people's cases, once a month. He's talking about a lifestyle. A lifestyle of obedient servants. service. We're temples of the Holy Spirit. So we no longer go to a temple to do rituals and sacrifices. We no longer have to keep certain Sabbaths and, and rituals and festivals. We praise and love and listen to God and serve him from our heart. And we can sing for joy no matter the circumstances, no matter where we are. Because Jesus is a savior for all men. And he's in control of all circumstances. So have you struggled being genuinely joyful this past week? We need to let Jesus define our joy. He alone is joy, not our circumstances and not other people. Do you have assurance of your faith this morning? Do you know for 100% certainty that you're on your way to heaven? What are you basing your faith on? Is it Christ alone and what he's accomplished for you? Genuine faith in the finished work of Christ cannot be destroyed or lost. Here's the second thing that Paul tells us. Secondly, Jesus is our highest value. Jesus is our highest value. He says, glory in Christ Jesus. So we're boasting. We're boasting in the triumph of Christ. It reminds me of this video I saw recently of this mom who's watching her son wrestle, and she is into it. You would think this mom was herself the wrestler on the mat. But the video that someone took from across the gym, she is standing, she is pacing, she is pushing on and wrestling on the person who's sitting next to her. She's like acting out 
what her son is doing on the mat. She's with him 100% in her soul and spirit. His win is clearly her win. She is glorying in her son. That's exactly how we should approach our relationship to Christ Jesus. We boast because he's won. He is the victor in the ring. He wrestled the law of sin. he wrestled the law and sin and death and Satan to the mat. One, two, three. It's over. And here's the kicker. He did it with both hands and feet tied to the cross. So next time someone says, I can show you up by uh, doing this task with one hand tied behind my back, you've got an opportunity to brag on King Jesus. He's our confidence. And friends, this is why this matters. Because if Jesus is the victor, if he's the one that declares us right with God because we put our faith in him, then once he's declared us righteous, no one else can declare us unrighteous. I don't care who gets you to try to doubt your salvation. I don't care what trial comes up in your life. God has the final word. Let his word assure you when you doubt and when you fear. Paul says, I put no confidence in the flesh. It's not based on my performance and how I'm living for God today, whether I think I'm a Christian or not. A Christian is someone who has been made right with Christ. And we'll talk about that more in just a moment. But one of the benefits of genuine faith is that we are assured we are saved. God is at work in our lives and we have eternal life. Paul even lists out all the ways he could try to put confidence in the flesh. And I guarantee you that whatever uh, spiritual journey you are on, this your list does not compare to the Apostle Paul. <coughs> he says he has been physically circumcised, by the way. He is a covenant member of Israel. He's an Israelite. He's of the tribe of Benjamin, so he can even trace his family history and lineage. This is a very big deal for a Jew in his day to be able to do that. In fact, if you couldn't, you were not considered a legitimate member of Israel. But he calls himself a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He's in a class unto himself. He was a Pharisee. So a, a religious student and then leader uh, who was a strict law keeper. The Pharisees were known for keeping every part of the law, but then also adding so many layers to the law, a bunch of human laws, so that they wouldn't even get close to the threat of accidentally breaking the law. He was as strict as you could get. And he was so strict that he became zealous against the teaching of Jesus. He was anti-Christian. He persecuted the church. He made it his mission to make the lives miserable for anyone who claimed the name of Jesus. And then he says, I was righteous under the law. I was blameless. No one could point out an area of Paul's life and say, you are a hypocrite. You are not living according to God's law. He says, no, my life was wrapped up in obeying the law. You could not point out one area of my life where I was being unrighteous. And yet Paul understands you can have all of the spiritual pedigrees in the world. You can have all the degrees on the wall. You can take all the ministry training you want, but whatever you have 
It's nothing compared to Christ. He says that in verse 7, whatever I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So P.T. O'Brien, he's a commentator, and he pointed out Paul is using accounting terms here. So think of an accountant like at tax season, which it is right now, and he's typing on his calculator and he's adding up all of these things. In Paul's case, adding up all of his individual righteous deeds, each one of them more impressive than the last. Add that to that and add that to that and tally it up. What do you come up with? What's the sum of that column? Paul says it counts up to zero. Or excuse me, adds up to zero. How is that possible? Each one of them was, was so valuable, seemingly. I think a, a similar example can be used in, in the news this past week. The Silicon Valley Bank, one of the largest banks in America. And it closed and folded within 48 hours. And here's what the news says is what caused this uh, absolute destruction of one of the largest banks in America. It says a panic induced by the very venture capital community that the bank had served and nurtured ended the bank's 40-year run. The investments went south. The investors pulled out. And the federal government had to step in and has to try to pay off all the creditors now. I cannot think of a worse feeling than losing all of those investments, especially if we're talking about our spiritual life. How many people on the final judgment day when they stand before God will realize that all of their religious deeds, all of their good works, anything from their life they have done to try to be good in God's sight adds up to zero. Even those who had the biggest buffers in their spiritual deposits, quote unquote, when you come face to face with the perfect, holy son of God, you will never add up. When Paul was met on the road to Damascus by the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, he reevaluated everything. And so should we. He reevaluated his values. He says, for the sake of Christ, I count it all as loss. Jesus is better. He's the glory of God. He's come in human flesh to show us that God keeps his promises, all of them. His promises to judge sin and wickedness. His judge to rescue the captive, to bring healing, to bring sight to the blind, to make all things new. This is our God, who's full of grace and truth, who has eyes of compassion and hands of strength. And Paul says further, I count everything as lost, not just my religious deeds, but my life, my money, my wealth, my possessions, my home, my relationships and education. There's nothing more valuable than knowing Christ. He is where the joy is. Jesus is the highest value. He's such high value. He is so beautiful and perfect 
and worth worshiping with our lives. Now Paul says, I count all of my accomplishments as dung, rubbish. In other words, a pile of you-know-what. And that's not to say money and jobs and cars and relationships are not good things or, or supposed to be enjoyed. But they are absolutely worth laying down and throwing in the dumpster in order to have Christ. So friends, do we evaluate our life priorities in view of Christ? Do we value him above all? At our church, Jesus needs to be our first value. We'll give up everything for him. We love him first and foremost, above all. We want to glorify God above all. And because of that, then our second core value is like unto it. It's loving people. It's our faith community. It's loving the lost. That's why we meet every week in small group. To care for one another. To learn from one another. To help each other live out our faith. And to keep pressing on. Because someone's up against the wall. Maybe it's you. And when we gather midweek, we encourage each other to keep going. We've also planned a church outreach on April 1st. And we'd like to have several of our church family share their testimonies, their stories of faith right there at the beach. Why? Because we want to invite people to consider the beauty of Christ. As beautiful as the beach is, Jesus is better. Lay down your life and pick up Christ. You'll never regret it. So this week in small group, we're actually going to prepare one another to share our testimonies. We're going to hear each other's testimonies. And some of us will share our testimonies on April 1st. And that story might sound different, but they'll all follow a similar pattern. I used to live this way. And then I met Christ. And now my life is full of joy and peace. If you are not plugged into a small group community, I invite you to join us. And if you have not considered the beauty of Christ and what he did for you on the cross, I invite you to reach out and receive him as your savior today and to keep receiving him day after day and walking by faith. Here's the third and final point that Paul makes for us in our text today. He says, joy is found in the pursuit of Christ. We, we, we saw already that I may gain Christ, anything to gain Christ, and I want to be found in him. So my position moving forward from the moment I put my faith in Jesus is that I am in Christ, and I'm not giving that up. I can't give that up. And here's why. Verses 9, 10, and 11 follow the path of a Christian from the moment of their salvation to eternity future. Verse 9 speaks to the part of our Christian journey called justification. And we'll talk about what that is when we were made right with God. Secondly, we'll see our journey of sanctification in verse 10. And then verse 11 shows us this is what happens in the future when we are found face-to-face -face with Christ, when we are raised from the dead in the future day. So verse 9 when our journey, our pursuit of Christ began, we found joy when we were justified. Paul says, I don't have righteousness on my own. I didn't earn my salvation. I couldn't work my way to my salvation. I couldn't keep the law well enough to be saved. 
Salvation only comes through faith in Christ. And that's when the righteousness of God comes to us. It depends on faith. And so it's not my goodness. It's not my righteousness. Christ has already won. He defeated sin and death and he nailed all of our bad deeds to the cross. And the empty grave opens up a way so God no longer judges us or casts his wrath upon us for our sin, which we certainly deserve. But when we see what Jesus has done as our substitute and we receive him by faith, God looks at us as the righteous judge and declares us just. Not because I did anything just, but because I placed myself under the covering of Jesus. Romans 1.17 tells us that the just live by faith. Isn't that crazy? I'm not a just person, but God can declare me just the moment I put my faith in him. So my entire Christian journey hinges on Christ. If Christ is a liar, I'm not going to heaven. But because Christ is not a liar, I'm guaranteed a future in heaven because I've put my faith in him and nowhere else. And Paul brings us to verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. He's talking about our sanctification, the Christian's journey of becoming more like Jesus as he spends time with him, listens to him, hears from him, obeys him, and walks out the faith of a Christ follower. We become more and more like him. That's the path of a disciple of Jesus. And I understand his power when I daily walk through the fire or the obstacles of life and I see his power at work overcoming those sin struggles and temptations and and the doubters and the struggles. He doesn't just save me from the past and from the lake of fire. He saves me to something. He saves me to himself. And he works in my heart to produce fruit the characteristics of God the Spirit. So when we saw that Jesus is our highest value, then isn't the most valuable thing to become more like him and so others can see him in my life? But then, of course, we have to view suffering through a different perspective than we did before. If Jesus is our highest value, I don't run from suffering like I would have as an unbeliever. Because Jesus tells me that he takes me through the valley in order to show the power of his resurrection. Paul says, I I share in his sufferings. So Christ came, he suffered. He suffered as a human, suffered as a man, suffered as a servant, suffered as a victim on the cross. Not that he was victimized, he gave up his life willingly, but he was unjustly condemned to die. He was brutally killed on the cross. He suffered so that he may be glorified and so that the Father would be glorified. And in our life's journey, God wants to show his glory through us. He wants to show how he can provide when it looks like there's no possible way forward, which only adds to our joy. If God is for us, who can be against us? Our joy increases even through suffering. We're like Christ in his death. We're also like him in that he rises and he rises again. And then as we look forward, we realize that one day we will rise on the last day. 
Verse 11 speaks to the Christian's glorification. That one day we will attain the resurrection from the dead physically. We'll be given a glorified body, mind, and soul. We'll be completely perfect persons. There won't be any more sin, no more sorrow or fears, no more stress and anxiety on our minds. We'll be made whole again. And Paul says, you know, somehow, somehow, he's not saying if or maybe one day we will be glorified. What he's saying is, I'm just not sure as the timing or circumstances, but if I can trust God with my past, he justified me and he made me right when I put my faith in him. If I trust him with today, as he sanctifies me through the suffering to make me more like Jesus, I can also trust him with the future that one day I will attain and I will be made whole. We'll reach the prize that we ran so hard for. God doesn't dangle Christ in front of us like a carrot and then say, well, I guess just you'll never reach it. One day we will. The same God who created all things with a word will recreate all things. He'll make all things new. We'll be with him forever. And here's the cool thing about our discipleship journey. Discipleship doesn't end when we get to heaven. Heaven is not, hey, sit back in your chair, grab a pina colada, sit on a cloud. You ran your whole life and now you just sit. Now imagine with me for a moment a perfect world. There's no crime, there's no corruption, there's no sin. You'll never get fatigued. You could run all day. You could work hard all day and have a blast and not be exhausted at the end of the day. Your mind won't get tired or bogged down the more that you think. Your eyes will not need glasses or get bleary in the morning or in the evening. And most importantly, God in human flesh, Emmanuel, will be right there living with us. And we can talk to him and learn from him and worship him and sit at his feet and, and hear his voice. And we can become more like him in our understanding because we will be perfect and we'll be able to see him as he is. Now imagine what pursuing Jesus will look like in that environment. Not only does God make us new, he gives us a new heavens and a new earth, the perfect arena to run our race. We will be satisfied. We won't ever run out of time. Oh, sorry, your five minutes with Jesus is up, or you gotta, you gotta get up to work now and leave Jesus behind. We'll be with him forever. Perfect, unending, limitless joy. Yes, true believers will push past that wall, and we will fully enjoy Jesus. So I'm going to ask our worship team to come up in a moment and we're going to think on these things that God is teaching us from his word. Most importantly about Jesus. Do you have a desire to know Jesus more and to get into the word, hear from him and pray and talk to him? To take simple steps of obedience 
because that's the pathway to joy. That's Jesus calling us forward. Are you here this morning and you're just exhausted? You're sapped of all your joy or or uh, you're emotionally drained. You're afraid of what people think of you. You've hit a wall and you're thinking of giving up. I think you're here this morning for a reason. And I want to invite you to hear the truth from God, what he says about you in this season. There is nothing you're facing that he will not give you the strength to work through and the joy to overcome. Call out to him now. Confess your weakness and cling to him. He will give you strength. And if heaven is our home, then Christian, how are you valuing God's kingdom, God's people? Are you looking for a perfect church here this morning? Then go ahead and keep looking because we're just some imperfect followers of Jesus in pursuit of the Savior. One day we'll be perfect and made whole, but not yet. But we'll be real with you about that and we'll invite you to take that next step of faith with us. And if the greatest prize in the world is Christ, if it's Christ's likeness, him at work in me, then who can you help to become a disciple? Who can you help take those steps of faith and and help them understand the word of God so they can also bear fruit of Christ in their life? We're on a mission. We want every person in Bradenton, Sarasota to know and possess the joy of Jesus. So start with one. Who's that one person you'll reach for Christ this week? Pray for them. Invite them to church. Care for them. And let them see the joy that's in your life. Lord, I pray this morning. I pray for the lost all around us. 700,000 people in our target area, our metro population area, and they do not know the joy of Jesus. They think they can find it elsewhere, God, or they're looking and they don't know where to find it. I pray you will show them yourself. Use us to share that good news with them. I pray for the doubting and the hurting here this morning. We've hit the wall, God, and I hit the wall myself this past week. It happens. When we doubt, Lord, help us to rest secure in our relationship with you. Increase our joy. And I pray, God, as we take that next step in our journey, we're not perfect. We haven't arrived. We've got so much growing to do, but you're so patient, God. Don't let us go. Keep our eyes on you. We love you. You're our prize and our our treasure. May we go out today singing of your goodness in our lives. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.